Hi, Richard. What's going on? Oh, hi, Emily. You're just in time for our If It's Hurting, It's Not Working board meeting. Um, OK, board meeting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I'm going to be CEO. Oh, really? Who put you in charge? Well, well, I'm the biggest. No, that's ridiculous. Nobody decides anything that way since we're in the playground. Uh, uh, well, well, all right. Look, I'm the oldest, so I've got the most experience. Hmm. Well, what do I get to do? Um, well, you can be chief people officer and chief finance officer, and I'll be chief technology officer. How about that? Mm, maybe. Well, hang on a minute. There's only two of us. So what's the chief people officer got to do? And we're not making any money. So you're just fobbing me off. Oh, dear. This chief exec gig isn't as easy as I thought it would be. Welcome to If It's Hurting, It's Not Working. Yes, we're back. And this time we've got a special guest. We're keen to build a self-help community around this podcast. And so far, we've had some great feedback from current colleagues that we work with, friends, family and even previous colleagues. Yeah, I mean, I, I was actually just this lunchtime, I was, I was talking with some colleagues. And I mean, we haven't promoted the podcast in the place where we work I mean, again, not because we're ashamed of it, but just because it didn't really feel appropriate to be talking about it massively in work. But, you know, a couple of colleagues have come across it and, and they were talking about it and, and, and saying how much they would enjoyed listening to it. So, you know, thanks for that kind of feedback. It, it's really encouraging and, and it helps us to keep going, knowing that that you're hearing it and you're getting something out of it. Yes, yeah, so we're not going to throw in the towel quite yet. It's obviously proven useful for people. So, yeah, keep that feedback coming back in. You'll see us promoting it on our Twitter account at If Hurt Not Work, or you can find us on our LinkedIn page that we've set up now. Yeah, indeed. Again, it, it's been good to see a number of people that we know, but also a few people that we don't have have joined that that page on LinkedIn. So, of course, whenever we're publicising the new episodes, you'll be able to see that through through that that means as well. And also, we've had a, a couple more good reviews on Apple Podcasts. So, you know, cancelling out that that one I was talking about that wasn't as good. It's always really encouraging when we get reviews or ratings. So keep them coming in, please. Yeah, I mean, it, if there's one thing that you can do that's really helpful for us, it's tell somebody about about what you've heard. Put something online to encourage other people to listen. Yeah, I, I guess being positive about it, but being positive in a way that enables other people to find us. That, that's really helpful. Thanks. Yeah, and you can always reach out to us via our email as well to provide feedback or ideas as well. If you've got certain topics that you'd like us to talk about, then please get in touch because our aim, like I said, is we're keen to build a self-help community. So for us to be successful in that, we need engagement from you guys out there. Yeah, and we're very keen to talk to you about the podcast and about how it can be you know, more effective and more useful for you. So for this episode, we're joined by Paul, who's the chief executive of the company where we work. Yeah. So hello, Paul, and welcome to If It's Hurting, It's Not Working. Thanks very much, guys. I'm a, a great fan of the podcast and it's uh, a real privilege to be part of it. 
Great. Okay, it's good to have you on board. So we wanted to involve you in the conversation we've been having about why we work, how we work and what makes a great job. Yeah, and we thought in particular it might be helpful to get the perspective of someone who runs an organisation and perhaps for our more ambitious listeners, there might be some thoughts about whether they might want to be an exec and if they do, you know, how you might establish yourself on that path. But I guess we'll get to that in time. Okay, so I'll kick off with some questions. So do you think that something really is changing in the world of work as a result of our experience during the pandemic and the changes in work patterns that have resulted from that? Yes, I I do believe that the pandemic has had a fundamental role, not necessarily in creating new trends, but in accelerating trends that were already happening quite slowly in the workplace. And for me, I think that there is, if you like, a, a rewriting of the psychological contract between employers and the people who work in their businesses. Mm-hmm. Previously, it was quite a kind of a paternalistic relationship and perhaps a little mm-hmm. bit one way where you were asked to come in and work a set number of hours doing a set number of things from a set location. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic has changed all of that and has introduced, if you like, a new element, which is based on flexibility and trust. And, you know, I think that some people really love that flexibility. Other people actually quite like a set of rules and a place to go and people to be with. And so it's really challenging for businesses, actually, to understand how best to respond to these changed circumstances, particularly as just as you think the pandemic is going to come to an end and we will return to some kind of new normal. Lo and behold, another variant arrives and you go back, you go, you, you go two steps forward and one step yep. and one step back. But I, you know, I'm an optimist and I kind of hope that 2022 is going to provide uh, greater clarity, really, for what the new normal looks like. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a lot for us to take on board, hasn't it? You know, you know, the, the the speed with which things have changed, and we've got used, I guess, to working at home, but but we haven't really maybe you know got our heads around all the possibilities that it has to offer yet. That that that's true, and and look, I think it's also really important that we respect the fact that there are lots of people who don't work from home. Mm. You know, on my way to the office this morning, and I'm in London today, I bought a cup of coffee from someone working in a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we go to Tesco or Sainsbury's or, or Aldi, there are people who've been working in those places throughout the pandemic. And, and indeed, uh, in my own organisation, I, of course, have people who work on shifts um, yeah. who have to be available to meet the needs of customers. And so there are jobs where that degree of discretion and flexibility doesn't actually exist which in a way also does create some tensions because it's all right for them, some of those people would say, but I have to be at that petrol station at eight o'clock on Saturday night or I don't get paid. So I think navigating the wide variety of working environments and job roles and maintaining an aspect of, of fairness in that contract between the person working in the company and the company is is going to be a real challenge for us. And I can only imagine that's been pretty scary for most people during the pandemic as well that have been out there having to go to work because if they don't go to work and go into those coffee shops or those petrol stations and fulfill their role they're not going to be able to put food on the table and pay the bills so and it doesn't like you say it doesn't bring that flexibility to that cohort of people but I think sometimes they need to the way that you look at it for that sort of role if you're on shift work you do get elements of time where yes you'd ordinarily be sleeping but you also get those pockets of time where 
you're not at work when everybody else is that you can go into the supermarket and do those mundane chores where it's probably a little bit quieter in in there because it's not peak times so it's it's always swings and roundabouts isn't it yeah hard, hard though so i think that you know systems emily that took many years to establish mm-hmm. where people were able to do things slowly experiment with what worked and make a small number of incremental changes there is now if you like an expectation that those changes are going to be much more rapid and much more fundamental you know i speak to a lot of other chief executives all of who run very different types of business and no one i think has really figured out the formula for the future and so that will be a challenge i think for leaders in businesses um, over the next year or two actually because i think it will take that period of time for things to really settle down again okay so so taking a, a sidestep then paul you have a, a very particular kind of a job and i wonder how you manage to find the right balance between your work and the other things like family and your other interests well uh i think the answer richard is I do a better job of it now than I did earlier in my career. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really, I'm just over 60, and it was it really took me until my 50s, I think, to, to really put the right kind of balance in the equation. I missed a lot of school plays, sports days, mm-hmm. school drop-offs and pick-ups, probably that I didn't have to because there was just an expectation that to get on, you really needed to focus on your job at all costs. Mm -hmm. Of course, now I'm in a position where I have, if you like, the freedom to decide what I do. I have a boss who's my chairman, but that's not quite the same as having a line manager. And now I think I do a uh, do a better job of balancing those those things. So belatedly, I'm a better parent and husband, I hope Uh, you'd have to ask Anne, James and Flora about that. But I also have a range of other interests, charitable and business that I have alongside my my job role. So I'm someone who is kind of always busy. But but all of those things for me have a sense of purpose from which I actually derive satisfaction. So I'm not a great one for sitting about doing nothing. I like to be I like to be doing something most of the time. I'm quite a, a, a restless, probably a bit of one of those type A personality that, you know, people always, uh, always on the go. And I'm very lucky that I've, I'm married to a woman who never rests as well. So she she understands that as well. So but but I, but I do think that it is something that comes with age and experience, that sense of what the right balance is for you, but also when you have more control and autonomy over the levers in your life. And I think most, yes. a, lot of, a lot of stress in the workplace and a lot of sense of being kind of out of control in terms of your whole life is that, you know, when you're bringing up teenagers who require homeschooling, and you've got a boss who wants to call a meeting at half past six in the evening just when you want to get them settling down to do that kind of a work. And it's that sense of being out of control and, and out of balance that actually, I, I think, creates quite a lot of, um, of anxiety. And I think we have seen that anxiety quotient rise during the pandemic uh, because we've lost autonomy over the way we live our lives. And, and, and you know, the government and, and others are basically telling us what we can do. From the number of people we can go for a walk with to the time that the restaurant has to shut and the number of people that can go and i think that 
people find that quite stressful. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's that balancing act sometimes, isn't it? It's always it can be quite tricky to get that, but I think I've said it on previous podcasts. It's about communication as well with your line manager, isn't it? If you are just meeting their expectations all the time and they're raising the bar all the time and it's not quite working for you, if you're not talking to them and saying, actually, that's bending it a little bit too much, the balance is coming off kilter, then you're never going to get it back in. So, yeah, I always think that communication with your managers is key. And have you found that, Paul, throughout your time? Look, I think there is no problem which is so difficult that it can't be solved through dialogue, Mm. whether that's in the workplace, in the family, between friends and between countries. So I, I think having that ability and that permission to be able to talk is important. You know, if you're struggling with one aspect of your life, it's great that you're able to tell your manager that that's the case. And hopefully that person will be understanding and say, well, okay, how can we how can we help you come out so that there is that kind of a win win? Because the worst thing that we want is people who feel that they get burned out Mm. uh, or, or, or indeed we get mental health issues. Last week, I actually went on a two day training course on mental health mm-hmm. because as a chief executive, I realized that I had a knowledge gap. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand enough about this subject, yet this subject is being raised with me by all sorts of people in all sorts of contexts. And I have to say it was extremely enlightening. I'm now a kind of level three first aider. But but more importantly, I think I have an understanding of the range of issues that can cause mental health problems, the number of paths and the availability as far as assistance is concerned. But but most importantly, that it's, it's really important to start from a position of empathy. And I think that in the context of workplace relationships, being able to walk a mile in the other person's shoes is probably the most important characteristic that you can have, seeing things from the other person's point yep. of view and, and being able to understand. And, and, and again, I think that the, it's those, those soft skills for very senior leaders that is actually probably the thing that will differentiate their performance and contribution the most in the future, rather than you know knowing how to do the finances or knowing about marketing or those, those kinds of things. So I think that the future belongs to the more human leader. I was also going to say, I was just to bring it back down to earth, it's, it's also very important to, to talk to the other boss, you know, in, in my case, my, my wife of uh, 30 years, to make sure that she's well abreast of all the things that I've got to do too. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you speak to anybody who becomes a CEO, the vast majority of them will, will be really clear about the really important role that their partner has played in that particular journey, because there are things you have to sacrifice you have to have really clearly defined roles and responsibilities so the other one knows what the other one is doing. Diary management, so yeah. they're not surprised that you're on a plane to Dusseldorf when they thought that you were actually going to be in Dorking, you know, that kind of uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, recognising that other relationship dynamic is incredibly important. And I've been I've been blessed with a wife who's put up with me for 34 years and, and still going strong. So what was your first job, Paul? Well, my, my first job was a paperboy. 16 years old in Watford where I was brought up and you had to be up at six uh, mm-hmm. on your bike down to the paper shop pick up your round and and actually go and deliver the papers and I think actually 
I'm not sure there are enough people doing those kinds of jobs as teenagers these days because it teaches you to get up in the morning, mm-hmm. which is actually quite a good thing. And secondly, I'm endlessly curious about other people's lives. And actually, um, it gives you a bit of a window on the world when you actually are putting the paper <laughs> through, through their doors. Who's up? Who's not up? Who's leaving for work? Who's grumpy? Who's got a fierce dog? All of that kind of thing. And then I also had a Saturday job working in a supermarket in Sainsbury, Sainsbury's in, in Watford. I used to do mm-hmm. a late night and uh, a late night and I, wor- I worked on the tills and that was before scanning. Yeah. And they liked me because I could remember all the prices. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and so, uh, so nothing so, much look, has I, changed then. <laughs> no, I, look, I come I, I come from a family that, that had very modest origins and uh, yeah, you, you know, we've always had to go and make things happen for ourselves. There's nothing better, actually, than going into Christmas and being able to use your tips to buy presents for other people mm. that you otherwise might not have been able to and that kind of, that kind of thing. So I suppose I, I had that kind of uh, work ethic and a sense that it was up to me from a pretty early uh, early stage. I don't think that ever really, uh, really leaves you. Mm. No, I think I had three jobs at the age of 16 by that point. Yeah, so now I can relate to that quite quite well. And the sense of satisfaction when you first buy all of those Christmas presents for your family and friends and the excitement of doing that is, yeah, it's good. The interesting thing, of course, uh, Emily, is that we remember more about those jobs than other jobs we've had yeah. later in our career. So they, they, they kind of they leave a mark. What about, what about you, Richard? What was your first uh, gig? My first job actually was was when I left school and I got, so I didn't have one of those sort of Saturday jobs. I, I worked for a company for a year before I went to university uh, and I started out in the apprentice school. So, so I guess that was still a bit kind of school-esque. So the first time I was probably standing on my own feet, I was helping to commission the uh, nuclear power station at Hesham. And it was it was interesting. I, I had to get all suited up and go inside the reactor as it was being built and, and help out with some of the tasks. So, so I mean, it was it was a fascinating job. It, it's a bit different from the, from the ones you're talking about. So, so there you are, Emily. We've got a man using his brain sorting out a nuclear reactor and we've got another bloke stuffing papers through doors in the suburbs of Watford and then a, a milkmaid <laughs> <laughs> it just goes to show doesn't it well yeah. it goes to show that that you need all sorts of jobs to make the world go around doesn't it well you do without your milk and paper in the morning absolutely you can't yeah, a yeah. Nuclear reactor. <laughs> <laughs> and actually I've always found a sense of satisfaction from work I've for me it's never been a burden it's always been a been a pleasure and maybe I'm I'm just unusual in that in that regard but even that first job was a lot of fun Mm. you've got me thinking about my youth now (laughs) yeah yeah nostalgic yeah okay well so so here's another one that might tap into the into the memories and so what's what's been your favorite organization to work for and and perhaps why is that well i did have um before i came to arkiva i was chief executive of europe's largest cinema company odeon Mm. and uci cinemas and I'd spent most of my career in the either in fast moving consumer goods or in technology. And so I'd never been in the entertainment industry before. And I absolutely loved it. Yeah. I'm a real cinema fan. I'll go at least once a week. And here I here I was getting paid to go to Hollywood and um, posting premieres uh, so my wife could cozy up with George Clooney. Oh. <laughs> but actually, the thing I really, really liked about the hospitality industry is because it's a people business. And it was also um, a business with lots of young people in it. And we were able to provide them with often their first job because many of them are students or or first jobbers. And 
really give them a whole set of life skills which would never leave them. I, I remember going into a cinema in Wimbledon. I met a young guy who was working behind the concession and he'd worked with us for about two months. And I said, oh, tell me, what's, what's the real key insight that you've had? He said, oh, he said, it's really simple. I'm no longer afraid to talk to people. Hmm. Uh, and I thought, wow, that is a, for, for someone who previously was very kind of introverted and not, not willing to engage with others, that skill which he'd gained in a relatively short period of time by working with us is something that would equip him for life going forward. So Mm. I really enjoyed that business. It was international, seven countries. I'm a linguist, so it gave me a chance to practice some of that. And it was a great it was a great journey, that job. So I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It it, it had a, a great set of outcomes for shareholders, for customers and for our staff. And it was it was a lot. It was a lot of fun. And I, I think that's actually quite uh, quite interesting. Those jobs that actually make use of the, a wide range of our different skills are probably really fulfilling because there's a lot of variety to it, but we find ourselves uh, exercising muscles that maybe we don't not, you know, normally get to. That's right. I mean, I, my, my first job after graduating was with Mars. And Mars have a philosophy that uh, their entry-level graduates have to work in a number of different functions right at the beginning. But actually, to become a director, you actually have to have headed up two function, two very different functions. So if you started in sales, you had to have run manufacturing to then be able to get the job running the business unit. And, and I think that's really important because mm-hmm. then you have people who are not just it's not just the finance guy who's got to the top by doing finance things. It's the finance guy who also knows that you have to have the right supply chain and the factory has to work well on a Saturday night and those 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 kinds of things. And so I've always been a, a real fan of, of firstly kind of broadening my own experience, but encouraging others to do that as well, because we quite often think of ourselves in, in a very narrow way. An engineer says, well, actually, I'm an engineer and that's my specialism, whereas actually they have a set of skills that could be applied to lots of different uh, lots of different areas. And and in the future, because technology is going to change jobs so much, it will be that ability to be agile and adaptive, which is going to define those people who are actually most successful. And so encouraging that to the biggest extent that we that we can, particularly through our own apprenticeship and graduate programs, I think is really, uh, really important. So if you if you specialize too much, you run the risk of engineering yourself out of a job at some point in the future. Mm, yeah. Definitely. So flipping it on its head, what has been the worst organisation you have worked for and why? Well, I, I can say this in public because I've told them myself. <laughs> <laughs> but the worst organisation I worked for was British Telecom. I joined in the early 90s, actually having worked at Apple Computer. So, the, you know, compare oh, yeah. and contrast. But I learned there in my two very unhappy years, that actually, if the values espoused by the organization are not a fit with your own personal values, then it is just a very uncomfortable place to work. Mm. And I like to think of myself as someone who's pretty upfront, open, transparent, honest, change-oriented, fast-thinking, fast-moving. And there I was in a bureaucratic highly political, quite kind of nasty, resistant to change type of culture. 
And I really, I really, I struggled on many, on many levels. But, you know, out of, out of bad things, there's always good things that come because it actually taught me at an early, quite a pretty early stage, the type of business that I would never want to be involved in again. And yeah. also that you, you have to eradicate some of those things if, if you want to, if you want to you want to have the right kind of culture and look you know phil jansen who runs bt today is a is a is a truly modern leader but even even today 20 odd years later bt is still challenged with many of those legacy uh, legacy issues and it's a kind of a bt is a bit of a curate's egg it's a mixture of the absolutely fantastic world-class world leading and quite a lot of still kind of old school very embedded uh, embedded behaviors and so yeah if it if it's hurting it's not working it's right <laughs> and, and actually you have to get out and yeah. uh, and so that's what i did i kind of sp- after two years i thought you know this organization's never going to change but it might run the risk of changing me so i better go and work <laughs> yeah. somewhere that's a that's a better fit and i i joined uh, the the mobile industry uh, with cable and wireless at that time so and that was a you know just chalk and cheese type ex- type experience so so yeah so uh, so that was a bit of a bump along the career path i would say so what's the best part of being CEO? Well, I'm often asked by people in discussion groups, what's it like being a CEO? Mm. And I say, well, it's a bit of a long, hard climb, actually. Yeah. And it doesn't happen by accident. You really have to make it happen. Yeah. But But when you get there, it's a bit like being on a windswept dusty plateau and there's nobody else there (laughs) so when you're a member of a team okay you can always have a good old moan about the boss what's he or she on this week i me, you know i don't understand all of that And, and so you've got a group of people that you you can kind of relate to and uh and and make sense of the world with when you're a ceo you are to a certain extent alone mm-hmm. i have a bit of a rule of thumb that nobody ever sticks their head around the corner and, and asks the ceo if they want to come for a sandwich at lunchtime because they always assume that you're really busy doing important things mm. and actually you know what would people say if you did that kind of a thing so so you have to be comfortable with that sense of of separateness from the organization and that means that a healthy ego is important with an emphasis on healthy, because when people get ahead of themselves and they start to believe their own publicity and they believe there's one set of rules for them and one set for the rest of the people, then there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've seen that, haven't we, recently with a, the chairman of uh, a Swiss bank who's had to settle, uh, had to leave because he used the company private jet to take himself on holiday and did all sorts of mm. other things. It was like, you know, which, which of course nobody else in the organisation would ever consider that was 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 a kind of appropriate behaviour. And so you need to be, you need to keep yourself in check. You need to be comfortable being independent. And and I think the I think the other thing is that if you have a strong set of values and beliefs, then when things go wrong you actually do steer a good path because you've honed those beliefs and those values over a period of time. And they are the things that see you through the difficult periods that occur from occur from time to time, because it's not all plain sailing. And resilience is actually quite an important characteristic. Most CEOs, Emily, last about five years in a role. 
Yeah. Because businesses go through cycles of change and, and sometimes an organisation can need a particular type of leadership at a particular point in time. And so it's really important that there's a good fit between the skills and orientation of that chief executive and the phase of that particular organization's development. You, you know, there's a, it's, it's a bit like uh, there's no such thing as a good school. There's only the right school for your child. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, same is, the same is true in CEO jobs as well. There are plenty of people who can do the job, but who's the best person to do that job at a particular point in time? And that is decided by the the board of directors. Mm. And then my, and then my final point is is about accountability. I say often that that CEOs live in a world of hyper accountability. You know, the buck stops with you. Not just in terms of business results. But if things happen further down the organisation that shouldn't have happened, mm. then you can't say that's nothing to do with me. You actually have to say, no, no, I'm, I'm responsible for what goes on in this organisation. And unless we go and fix that or we change that, then that's not going to be that's not going to be good. And people will look to you to do that as well. So there's a kind of a burden, there's a bit of a burden of expectation. There's a sense of, of true accountability and a need for that kind of purpose and resilience as, uh, as kind of essential bits in the toolkit, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's refreshing to hear you say that, Paul, because it doesn't appear to be universally felt in, in this country at the moment that responsibility comes from the top. No, I think it's I think it's really sad, Richard, actually, because at the end of the day, there has to be respect for institutions because it's institutions which actually shape and govern our lives, be they companies, be they governments, be they charities even. If you think about mm. Oxfam and all the stuff that went on in uh, a few years ago yeah. in, in, not, in the not-for-profit sector. And when behaviour starts to erode confidence and trust, then the fabric of society weakens a little bit. And, uh, you know, as, as business leaders, the subject of purpose and the role of companies beyond profit is becoming much more important. And so consideration of those types of issues around integrity, respect for whistleblowing and those kinds of things, which 10 years ago was in the nice to do box, is now front and centre in terms of the kinds of things that people are, are thinking about. So, you know, in many ways, the job of a CEO is getting more complicated as the world becomes more volatile, more uncertain than it ever has been than it ever has been before. So do you have any pointers, I guess, for listeners to this podcast who think that they would, you know, would like a career as an exec? What what should they be doing? Well look, I I think the first thing is what company are you working for? Because the quality of the experience that you get is directly associated with the quality of that business. The second thing, which I always think is important, is that your boss is more important than your job. Mm-hmm. Okay, So some people get seduced by fancy job titles and what have you, whereas actually the most important thing is, am I working for someone who is going to take the time to under- both understand me and help to develop me? Because there's nobody who gets to a CEO position who hasn't had somebody who's really believed in them and Mm -hmm. invested in them and pushed them beyond their own initial limits. 
And that's a really that's a really important one. And then the third one is that career development, whether it's for a CEO or to become a director or a head of department, the future belongs to the curious. Those people who want to find out about the markets that they operate in are curious about what customers are thinking, are curious about what their colleagues are saying and are developing a set of skills that gives them choices. Mm. Emily, sometimes people talk about the career ladder. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a very kind of outmoded way of thinking. If you think about this kind of prize job being on the other side of a river, okay, and you're on this side of the river, and you think about each of your skill sets and experiences being a pontoon that's on the river, the more skills and experience you have, mathematically, you have an exponentially larger number of routes over to the other side to achieve your objective than just going in a straight line. Because careers don't happen in a linear kind of way. No. They, they often happen in a, in a very kind of happenstance kind of a way. And so you're giving yourself the maximum chance by having the richest set of experiences and knowledge. And, and that requires that drive to come from within because you can't instill that in in people. It has to be something which they they develop and, and nurture themselves. So, Paul, what do you think is the secret to your success? Luck, being prepared to take risks mm-hmm. that other people might not take. Yep. A really supportive family who have put up with me doing some incredibly arduous things you know traveling the world for six months of the year that kind of that that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and I think the right blend of ambition and humility and I think that is the that is that's a that's sometimes a tricky thing to manage Mm. so I would say that uh, Paul Donovan 15 years ago was heavier on ambition and lighter on humility uh, but the Paul Donovan today is heavier on humility and lighter on ambition, whereas my ambition is not for myself anymore. My ambition is for the company that I lead and the people who work in it. If you if you appoint a, a CEO in their 40s, they spend their time demonstrating to the world that they can be a great CEO. Yep. If you appoint a CEO in their 50s, they will be much more interested in the legacy of what it is they actually leave behind and that's simply to do with your with life stage and experience and so that's quite an interesting uh, I- I insight and actually you really only get that insight when you've made that journey yourself because uh, then you've you it, it's lived experience and you you kind of know it to be you know it to be true but luck's the biggest thing all great tips Paul, I think, I think it's really refreshing also that you talk about luck because there aren't very many people who would acknowledge that, you know, in your position. Well, it's, I acknowledge it because it's true, isn't it? <laughs> Napoleon said there are good generals and there are lucky generals. Uh, yeah. I pray to God that I get good lucky generals. <laughs> <laughs> so that seems to be the, uh, that seems to be the, the, the insight there, I think. Sure. Okay, well, look, thanks very much for sharing your time with us this morning. It's really, it's really good. Really good to speak to you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming along and chatting to us, Paul, and being our first guest on the podcast. So if you know of anybody else that would like to come and talk to us, then please spread the word.
Emily, it's, it's been a great pleasure. Also good to get to know a bit more about you as well along the way and your early experiences. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll have to dig further into that, uh, that whole milkmaid thing for sure. I'd certainly be really happy to recommend people to, uh, to participate. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye now. So thanks very much for tuning in and listening to another episode of If It's Hurting, It's Not Working. As ever, you can find us on Twitter by searching out our account at If Hurt Not Work. And we've set up a LinkedIn page. So if you just type in If It's Hurting, It's Not Working into LinkedIn, you'll find our page there. So go and give us a follow over there. And uh, I mean, obviously, you've you found our our podcast by one means or another, but it's very easy to, to, to you know, if, if you're trying to explain to your friends where to how to do it, it's very easy. You just have to search for if it's hurting, it's not working on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you get podcasts, as well as uh, as our website over at Podbean. It'd be really great if you do go to and visit Apple Podcasts, if you would rate and review, as we discussed earlier, that really helps people to find us. Either a good rating or particularly a review would be a help. So thanks to those people who've already done that. It's, it's, it's really helpful. And yeah, if, if you get the, t- the chance to do it, that would be really appreciated. Thank you to our podcast host, Podbean, who choose If It's Hurting, It's Not Working to be one of their featured podcasts just before Christmas. We're also going to be promoting them. Podbean is an easy to use and cost effective way to create your own podcast. You can download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcasts and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. So head on over to Podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 to get your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. And we'll catch you next time. Yeah, yeah. Bye for now. So for this episode, we're joined by Paul, who's the chief. Oh, here we go. This is where I always start off and get my tongue tied. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope big cheese. <laughs> He's the big oh, cheese. He's very <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I can let. Ten o'clock fire alarm. <laughs> yeah. Hard though. Um. I, oh, oh. I wonder whether this might not be an. It is a test. It is okay. a test. I thought that was going on for quite a while. while. Yeah. Just goes to show the real live world of podcasting is not about <laughs> its challenges. No, <laughs> we can hopefully we can edit that noise out. Yes. Ears are ringing. I know Emily has to drop off quite soon. Maybe record a quick thank you, and then we, you know we can sort of fabricate the rest of it as we need to. Fabricate, yep. Richard. <laughs> <laughs> All the jiggery-pokery that goes on in the background. (laughs) I haven't convinced you, but it's fine. (laughs) No, that's fine. It will make sense once we do it and you pull it all together, I'm sure.